What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing on this Memorial Day? Doing well, man. Like uh, Maddie Healy says, I know you're online all the time, except when we're outside for Memorial Day weekend. How's it going? HBO Max right around the corner. Yeah, HBO Max right around the corner, and that's a good lead into our first topic. However, just like Superman stopping a speeding bullet, I'm going to stop the podcast and say, before we jump into it, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to iTunes, uh, give us a subscription there and a five-star rating review, and SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to follow the pod always you want to. Also, add NostalgiaPod on Twitter. Back to HBO Max and... The Snyder Cut coming to the HBO Max platform in 2021. Big news this past week, Dave. I mean, we the, the Snyder Cut started out as like a, a real fan movement and then became kind of like an online joke in a way. At least in, in my mind, I kind of just thought it was a laugh. And, and, you know, a bunch of people who couldn't accept that their, their favorite uh, superheroes, their favorite stories just were not being portrayed on the screen, maybe to the level of excellence that they had hoped. Um, you know, wanting this this thing to be out there to prove that that their heroes and their stories were in fact better than were being portrayed, that their these characters were more interesting. Well, those fans are getting what they want, Dave, because Zack Snyder is indeed going to be releasing the Snyder Cut, potentially a, a three plus hour long movie or a six-part miniseries on HBO Max sometime next year. How are you feeling about this news? Is this good for for superheroes and IP and, and all this stuff? Tell me, Dave. How should I feel about this? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was interesting. Is There's the angle of should you bow down to fan pressure mm. and online campaigns and that sort of thing. Largely speaking, most of the release of Snyder Cut people are acting in good faith and genuinely just were campaigning for the original version of Justice League, of course, that Zack Snyder had largely shot but had not finished and then, of course, had to leave the project when his child uh, passed. And, of course, we know Joss Whedon came in and redid a lot of Justice League, thus resulting in a tonally scattershot and largely poor effort. And it was a commercial flop as a result. So... I don't know like if, if that's a precedent we should like. However, we don't even necessarily have to go down that road because this actually just makes a lot of sense for Warner Brothers to uh, have this for HBO Max. Obviously, it would have been great if they had it ready for this Wednesday when the service launches. But either way, you're kind of getting all those negative or at least persistent comments about releasing Snyder Cut off all your social media because they were always there in all the comments, right? And now you have like these people have are invested again in your service and it's just going to be good press and drive interest. And while I don't necessarily expect the Snyder cut to be like this amazing film, I am interested to see what the hell it is because Zack Snyder has kind of teased and showcased little bits and pieces on uh, Vero, the, the social media site, like, you know, we know there's going to be a black suit Superman and dark side is actually going to be present in the film. There's a lot of this, you know, kind of intriguing stuff. Just to kind of see what Snyder had in mind, you know, Snyder's vision. I don't know if Snyder's vision is something that we need to be that invested in through man of steel and black man versus Superman <laughs> and the parts of justice league. We did see that he was involved in, but it's still kind of interesting. Now what, what I found most surprising was that Warner media, HBO, everyone is, giving Zach between 20 and $30 million to finish this endeavor. Because as we knew with the Snyder cut, it was really just raw footage. No, no VFX, you know, no, no mixing of the sound or anything. So there's a lot of work needs to be done. And apparently they will be in fact, uh, recording new ADR, new lines, but not actually doing any reshoots. And, you know, judging off of some of the tweets, seems like Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill and Momoa and Gal Gadot and everyone else is, uh, on board with this so that's kind of cool so i don't think it'll be anything that great but it is a very interesting endeavor for sure 
Yeah, it's I, I'm excited about it for I think a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, but also, um, you know, I I think the circumstances that led to uh, Snyder having to leave, um, you know, with with his daughter completing suicide, the family, you know, choosing to kind of walk away from work at that time to focus on healing and, and grieving that loss. This feels uh, not only like a win for fans, but also like a, a chance at um, uh, redemption and, and completion of something for, for Snyder in a way. And I, I feel excited about that. And like you said, it makes a lot of sense for the platform. Um, it's, it's going to drive subscriptions at least when it gets around time to, to be uh, dropped, you know, especially if it is releasing a six part thing, you can't just mm. use your one month free subscription on that. Uh, so potentially that'd be devious. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's a lot of, of parts at play, but um, I, I think good all around for everybody involved. And it's kind of cool to hear that all, all these stars are rallying back around. And so there was something about this that uh, what didn't come across in Whedon's uh, portrayal of the story that all, all these actors were so on board with and want to see carried through. So you have to feel really good about that. I also feel excited because um, I think in, in a sense we've been, uh, the, the Flash movie has been kind of stalling, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think like, Aquaman was good in some ways, not so great in others. And you can check out our review on that. But this feels like an opportunity for them to maybe, I don't know, correct the sh- correct something in a way or, or, or move these characters in different directions that potentially Warner Brothers could move them to, especially with Flash being in such kind of like up and down. Is it right. going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Maybe this is a real chance for Ezra to, to shine a little bit more. In that character. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, also, Cavill perhaps we'll like sign a new deal to be Superman again. There's been a lot of reporting and rumors in both directions regarding that. So I think a lot of people like Henry Cavill as a Superman, even if they haven't necessarily loved the material he's been given to work with. So that's, that's um, perhaps a good thing. Now, now Affleck, uh, you mm-hmm. know, him returning to this after obviously putting this all to bed because it was a rough time for him personally, of course, and we heard a lot about that in his press for the way back. You know, Affleck coming back to record some uh, lines if if needed is actually kind of surprising to me. But um, yeah, I mean, overall, I've kind of liked where DC's been going just in their direction. But yeah. this is kind of like a flashback to when they were trying to have a more connected multi movie arc uh, frame of storytelling. Granted, you know, it was Snyder's purview, so we had some flaws, but. Um, I'm curious to see if, if this is just kind of a bookend and they're just looking at this for the obvious uh, marketing and money grabbing aspects of it, or if there's any creative juice after this, who can say right now um, along these lines release the Colin Trevorrow episode nine script, because all the rumors <laughs> about that were great. And the rise well, of Skywalker was not. That, that brings me to a, a, something I guess I wanted to just check on quickly with you. Do you think we're going to start seeing these sort of things happen more when when a fan base is upset with the way that uh, a story is portrayed or something comes across that these big brands might on a, on a much smaller scale be releasing these edits or these these changes? You know, Star Wars, like you talked about, is kind of known for making these like, small little George. edits and just putting out on, on platforms. Do you think we'll start <sighs> seeing these sort of things happening more often? Or is this a one-time think, thing? Yeah, I don't think there's like a huge prevalence of tons of material on the cutting room floor ready for Zach to finish. If he was just given the chance, like there's not a lot of these opportunities, right. Um, that, you know, looking back, we have like the Richard Donner cut of Superman two is one of the more famous versions of this happening before. And yeah, I think it'd just be like just normal director's cuts. Famously, we have Blade Runner and kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of them, both good and bad. So yeah, I, I don't know if, um, retconning your own work like George Lucas is going to suddenly become really in vogue. But who, know, who knows? Maybe if this is actually really good and executives get some ideas in their head, who knows? Release the Lord and Miller solo cut. Oh, that's a good one. Now. I'd love got, to see that. They filmed, I forget how much, they filmed what, two thirds of that movie? <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah. Um, Even if it was just a taste, just to see their tone, yeah. I, just very, very curious. Heck, I, I, there's so many versions of Rogue One. I'd love to see the other versions of Rogue One. I love that movie. 
release them Disney Plus. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on to some music. Uh, Alma, the Finnish young pop star. I guess not really not that young. Twenty four years old, really burst on the scene at age seventeen on the uh, Finnish Idol uh, TV show, where she came in fifth. Then she kind of. Uh, popped on some songs, uh, had some some hits over in Finland, and now is releasing her solo album. Has been kind of collaborating with Charlie XCX and Tavlo and, and Miley even a little bit over the last couple of years. So some, uh, some big names that that co-signed with her and, and her ability. And with her debut album, Have You Seen Her? I think she really makes a statement as she bursts into the 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 scene as a pop star she had a couple of singles back in 2017 that that charted but this is really the uh i think the the first statement she's making and what i take away from this is um she is has uh, the ability to write a hell of a hook her choruses are incredibly catchy and her vocals are fantastic i don't think all of her song choices in terms of like the sonics of it always feel like they match or feel right. And she's definitely still trying to find, I think, her, her distinct sound. However, I was really blown away by this as, as a first album. How did you feel about Alma's debut? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because her biggest song, Chasing Highs, which I think is a really good song and also has an amazing hook, uh, as you might expect at this point. That's like a really like kind of formulaic, bombastic, electropop song. Pretty, pretty familiar sound, but good. And she doesn't really do that on this, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. And like, she's not going into that more formulaic radio-friendly lane. And in the past, she has helped people do that. As you mentioned, she's did a lot of co-writing with Miley Cyrus. Um, she wrote that Charlie's Angels song that Miley and Ariana are on. Like, she, she, she's uh, kind of been, been, been around. And you mentioned Tuvlo. That seems to be a real collaboration. We get more of that here. Um, I really liked her first EP, Dye My Hair. I think that's my favorite piece of work from her. Mm-hmm. And in terms of it's like songs I really like to take away from it. But I, I think your point about this a statement of like kind of like artistic intent uh, for Alma on this debut album, it is clear that she kind of has more interest in her art than just kind of chasing that easy success that she's talented enough to easily find. And that's pretty cool. You know, she was, um, it's funny. She's on pop two with Charlie XCX. She's on out of my head, which is a great song, but I feel like I, I didn't really like remember or have that like resonate about who she was until I saw on YouTube in 2018, she does background vocals on Dua Lipa's BBC live lounge version of, uh, I don't give a fuck, which is kind of an iconic video because it's Dua doing that song with background vocals from Alma, Mo, Charlie, and Zara Larson. It's kind of like all these like European queens of pop. <laughs> and uh, that's basically all the comments. Like, imagine having these people on your background vocals. That was the first time I really like remembered who she was. And if you listen to or read some of the press she's done for this album, uh, it seems like her team wanted to delay this, but she was, you know, wanted to keep this original plan and has been trying to get to this point of this debut album. It's finally here for her after being around for quite a while, even though she's not that old. And yeah, I think, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I still like uh, the earlier stuff a little bit more just because I think I, I like the, the sound personally, but I think this is still pretty cool. And, and there's definitely some songs that you can uh, appreciate on Have You Seen Her. So definitely in it, on Alma. You know, it's funny because the, the title track is the first one and that's almost the song that I feel like is the least, it uh, fits in the least in this album. It's so MIA bombastic that like mm-hmm. at, when, it, when we got to like the second or third song and it felt like she was finding more of her groove which is really at least to me this more like traditional pop sound she's experimenting with a couple of, of flares of other genres here and there but really her vocals are just primed to be a, a pop star moving forward have you seen her the song almost like felt like a huge outlier on this and her taking a real chance. I think the song I come back to, and I think because it not only highlights the thing I like best on this album is her ability to write hooks, but how she 
really drives those hooks home with such like flawless vocals is yeah. the, the last track final fantasy mm-hmm. like the way that she hits that note in the chorus final fantasy like just like <laughs> gets stuck in my head every time i just want to keep going back to it um that's probably my my favorite song off this but you mentioned a couple of, of them that you felt were worthy of, of talking about which ones stood out to you I also really like My Girl and Loser also mm. towards the end. I think those are just, yeah. again, she, she she has a way of, even when these are not like conventional pop songs, they still have really catchy elements to them. And that's, I think it just speaks to her songwriting and her, her range. She has, she has yeah. a really strong voice. She's a unique artist. And, and even her look, it feels like it's taking a little bit of, of like Billie Eilish inspired style and mixing in these like amazing vocals and, uh, with you know trying to craft a unique sound so definitely someone will be keeping our eye on moving forward and probably adding a song or two to the playlist um, any other thoughts on alma before we move on just shout out the european pop singers man there's a lot of them right now kim petrus from germany is also popping off and czar larson gearing up for her third album alma there's a you know there's more than just robin these days it's kind of cool it's like a lot of other genres they're just a big influx of talent so We'll be we'll be looking out. Hell yeah! No, uh, someone else that's very talented is Michael Hedris Hedris of Perfume Genius, dropping his fifth studio album two weeks ago, same weekend as Alma. We just did not get to all the albums from that weekend uh, in time for last week's pod, so we wanted to circle back. As you know, we talked about most of Somni last week and really praised his album Gray for. Uh, the uniqueness of sound for this, these really heartfelt and moving lyrics coupled with just Moses's uh, really uh, unique, amazing, mind blowing uh, vocal performance on the album and and on every song he does pretty much. Um, And this, this album was drawing uh, some, some comparisons. This album set my heart on fire immediately from perfume genius I think where the comparisons kind of start and stop though is, is the songwriting and the way that Hadris is able to really expose himself and use his uh, ability to write uh, unique and, and these, these catchy lyrics that are very meaningful, but still kind of able to fit into a song that does kind of get stuck in your mind or does have a part that really catches you um, while keeping really, I think his, unique perspective which is as you know uh, his sexuality as a gay man is at the center of a lot of his writing especially over his last three albums I'd say it's really been more and more a part of it and I think that's kind of where the comparison started end because I don't think Perfume Genius has the ability to uh, match the vocal performance or the the uniqueness in terms of genre as Moses Sumney but I still thought this album had a lot of really high points to it and things that I, I walked away loving. How did you feel about this uh, This album, Set My Heart on Fire, immediately? Right. So I was going in with the reference point to compare to Moses Sumney. And I don't think Michael's vocal, I won't say vocal range, but uh, bandwidth to change like the way he delivers his lyrics and those inflections. I don't think it's nearly as varied as it is for Moses Sumney on Grey. Um, but you can definitely hear him doing a lot still, so the comp does make sense to me. Um, yeah. Overall, I found some of the deeper cuts is a little sleepier, a little slower for me, tough for me to connect with. But he does have some songs on here that have a little bit more of a pop sensibility, a little catchier, a little more upbeat in particular. Songs like On the Floor, Without You, Moonbend, songs like that. Uh, stood out to me a lot and you can kind of just tell that um, even if he's softly spoken from time to time uh, he's still a really strong songwriter so I understand the hype yeah I I don't think we were talking before we jumped on the pod that you hadn't had a chance to go back listen to learning from 2010 or put your back into it from 2012 and it's interesting if you listen to the whole um, discography in order you really do see him uh, almost like blooming like a flower in a way <laughs> as he goes throughout his albums. Cause learning from 2010 is incredibly sleepy. I don't even think you would probably make it through it, Dave. Cause it really is just him at a piano, very soft, almost like achingly like shy vocals on it. Yes. 
<laughs> and then put your back into it. You start to hear these little flourishes and things coming out. And then I feel like too bright from 2014 and then no shape. Of course, the album before this, you, you see him infusing electronic elements, playing around with song structure um, and really just putting himself more and more personally into his songwriting um, and set my heart on fire immediately. I think there's a couple of high moments that are, are some of the best of, of his career. Um, on the floor is one that really stands out to me. Uh, I thought that that was probably the most energetic song that, that came out of this and, and the song that I felt like showed the most of, of his ability to craft um, like a poppy singer songwriter sound um, without use another one that stood out. But even songs for me like Just a Touch, um, Leave, Describe, they're so well written. They, they really infuse these different elements into it that all feel so um, unique and, and something that you don't really hear often with alternative music at this point. Um, it, it just is a very, he, he's an artist. And I, I think that's why I appreciate most is this feels like art to me. Um, although we're going to be talking about another artist in a minute that I don't always connect with their vision. Um, I, I, I feel like I can connect a little bit more with, with Hadris on this. Um, I know without you and, and on the floor were the songs that you connected most. Was there anything else that even stood out to you at all? Yeah, Moonbend as well. Yeah, that's a solid track. Um, I, I think we'll be talking a little bit more about Perfume Genius probably when we get to the end of the year for me. But um, I don't know, maybe we'll even do like a mid-year like roundup. I'm not sure. But check it out and check out our playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2020. You know, Phoebe Bridgers is, does some backing vocals on uh, on the floor. And she also does some backing vocals for the 1975 on their new album. Oh, boy. Notes, Notes on a Conditional, on a conditional form. form. One of the shorter titles, brother. <laughs> uh, Matt Healy, dog. That's all I got to say. I'll, I'll let you lead this one. Yeah, this is the fourth album from the <laughs> British Quartet from Manchester, the 1975. Um, I think a band that has rose in estimation generally speaking coming off their last album in 2018 a brief inquiry into online relationships uh notably their song off that love it if we made it got a lot of accolades and comparisons to past touchstones such as billy joel's we didn't start the fire and the overall uh Lyrics reflecting on the current state of affairs of the world were compared to stuff like Radiohead's Kid A. I think to more rockist folks, these were tough comps to hear, considering 1975 <laughs> is tried and true a pop rock band, emphasis on the pop. But, uh, you know, Maddie Healy is, I think, one of the most intriguing uh, frontmen in rock music, whether he's a rock artist or not, because he kind of just is a good interview and he says a lot of shit and he's, I I just kind of find him really interesting, even if he ultimately makes a lot of really weird music. Um, And this fourth album notes on a conditional form, I think is a lot like album three in the sense that it's very scattershot. They're doing a lot of different things. Genre wise, sound wise issue with this one is it's also quite long. (laughs) So the, I think lack of coherence can be tough. But also maybe they justify the length just a tad more because it jumps around more. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, this kind of this felt like another 1975 album coming coming out of album three. So uh, there's stuff I like, stuff I don't like, and there's a lot going on. They're doing the most. That's what they do. So and in a sense, it met expectations. But as a noted non-fan of the band, uh, how did you handle this fourth record? Well. It was it was a long listen. It was, it's eighty minutes long. I mean, come on, like twenty two songs. Very very long. Very indulgent. You know, and and I think, I think when you think about the nineteen seventy five, you really have to think about them as the ultimate millennial Gen Z band, right? Because it almost feels like their whole point is is to not ever stay in one lane like they're just always like jumping around from thing to thing and that's kind of what they want to go for they just want to be this band that you know you can't put uh you know uh labels on you can't pin down sure uh and some of that they they do 
really well. But the funny thing is that some of it just leaves me head scratching. You know, you started off this album with this very long intro from Greta Thunberg. Yep. Uh, this is a previously about- released song, by the way. This is a single. <laughs> yes, this was a single from them. And, uh, you know, she has this, like, I think, four to five minute talk about the climate crisis and, you know, that the solution is very easy. We need to stop the emission of greenhouse gases and, and she, you know, this whole thing. And it, and it feels like it's going to be a statement for the album, right? Like you put that as the first song. It's almost saying like, we're talking about this. And then the rest of the album is about like relationships, being online, uh, things not working out, times that you were happy, times you weren't. It feels just kind of and like it, this. I will say this is followed up by a song called People, which I couldn't even make it all the way through because it just felt like such a fucking clusterfuck in my ear. Um, but it, the the to start off with that and then like move away so quickly just feels so okay. Like we're just going to jump around. Like you can't pay attention to anything and you have ADHD. Um, it's fine. Cause some of the songs are pretty good and catchy and like they're, they're good pop songs. Uh, I think where I feel very turned off by the 1975, it's not necessarily their fault, but they have been tapped. I think in a lot of ways as like the next great rock band heading into I don't know, the 2020s, um, you know, especially after the last album, getting those comparisons to things like Kid A, Act Tongue Baby, uh, you know, Billy Joel, We Need to Start the Fire. They're really positioned as this, like the next uh, you know, cross bear for rock music. And they're not really rock. <laughs> they're pretty, they're pretty straight pop. And uh, I think the, the more people can realize that and stop putting the pressure on them to be this rock band, the more they can just make the, the Bieber-esque, pop songs that they want to right now like a, a couple of these songs were pretty good uh the song hold on if you're too shy let me know banger of a song that saxophone solo really at good. the end loved it that was great um another that song like that, a, I thought, that was like an 80s like new wave song but it's talking about being online all the time i thought that was yes. like kind of perfect 1975 really that was great and but it, it's it's pure pop you know like it yeah. really actually sounds like carly ray jepson's i want you in my room a lot of the time like i was like oh this is very uh just of, of that that lane a song like i think there's something you should know pretty much soft pop love song like i mean uh me me and you together it's very 90s alt rock love song like it's yeah, that was good just, like that one too it, yeah also good like really some of these groove. things really work and then you also go to things like roadkill which is this like attempt at being Western, which had varying effects at, at points in the song to me. Um, you have <laughs> things like, uh, man, I don't remember which track it was playing. Oh no. Having no head, which is just a, uh, no words. I don't know. Intro song. Lots of, yeah. There's a, there's like what five or six interludes that are effectively if- complete instrumentation songs. And that, that's, that's half the reason the album's so long is because cut it out. <laughs> because you have these all these interludes that are just instrumentals and i'm not anti-interlude when they're not all full length on top of you also had 16 full lengths real songs you know mm-hmm. like we you could have kept the interludes if you trimmed some other stuff out whatever um you know it's funny roadkill actually stood out to me because i mean that's what track nine or something right in the middle or something like yeah, that. yeah yeah but it like popped up in like a weird way in my ears and i was like oh wait this is this is different and after Mm -hmm. you know hearing a few interludes already and some of the softer kind of traditional stuff they've done before leading up to it um (laughs) at least made my ears pop up yeah Um, yeah i what you said me and you together song right after roadkill though i really like that one that kind of had like a i'm trying to place and i couldn't figure it out but like kind of like a pop punk melody to it i was like does this remind me of blink 182 i couldn't really figure it out Hmm. but it kind of reminded me something the way they had a song on their last album remind me of R. Kelly. Like they, they have a way of kind of mimicking famous melody of the past in cool ways, which I do appreciate that. That song, it almost kind of reminded me, I I was trying to think if it was like, it's not blind melon. Um, There's another band from the nineties that I'm really blanking on that. It sounded a lot like, and I was like, Oh fuck. You're just kind of ripping them off, but I couldn't place it. So maybe they're not, maybe they are just kind of melding that sound, you know? Um, and that's the thing is that, that that like middle run is pretty fucking good. Like uh, in terms of like pop music, that's some of the best pop music you're probably going to listen to this year. And, and Healy really crafts some great songs on here. Um, but then you have things like Bagsy, not in the, in net. What the fuck was that, dude? <laughs> like, 
just so random in terms of like sound and genre i don't know and i guess like for me like it, the album seems very scattershot and like that i know the 1975 is kind of their thing to me it feels just a bit like a mess and like you could have just used a little bit more time to tighten things up um yep and you know starting off with like a thesis statement of climate change and crisis and this is what we're all facing and then moving towards just like the mundane normal relationship stuff most bands sing about just feels like maybe you should have had a different thought about where you put that i don't know just yeah a little performative but overall very 1975 some good some bad uh Probably the one, probably the album I've liked the most though. They're growing on me, Dave. Maybe by the next album I'll be a fan. Who knows? Yeah, I'm kind of curious if this is an album that'll win over new converts versus just pl- placate the large fan base they already have. You know, because because it's so lo- uh, long and largely inaccessible and jumps around. I don't know if you know. Maybe, I think he's kind of have to put play the highlights for people to get them into the band because you know. Uh, I mean, you you run, if I run through the other. Uh, three albums i don't like most of the songs but then there's songs that i really do like because there is an undeniable i think strength pop strength that healing the crew bring to so some of their songs but yeah i just want to shout out what should i say at the end as well because that had some really heavy uh vocal effects on yeah. that song unlike really anything to that point on the album and that was kind of revelatory to me i was like wow this sounds really good and this is really new for them so mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, that was pretty cool. I had two two more thoughts. First, their drummer is great. Like he mm-hmm. seems to really hold the band together, and the drums almost always stand out to me. Um, second, and I had this thought while I was driving, listening to this album: is the nineteen seventy five just like the pop rock version of Drake? You know, they <laughs> they release these super long albums. You know, kind of directionless trying a lot of genres just kind of seeing what's going to pop off what won't it feels a bit like i mean drake is so much more he's just releasing music constantly 1975 isn't but i mean it feels like the closest comparison i could i could think to to another artist you know you know maddie had said they wanted to put this album out about a year ago they initially announced this (laughs) album was going to come out like uh may 2019 or something like five six months after the last album in 2018 and obviously things got pushed back and we were supposed to get this end of April coronavirus pushes it back a month. And yeah. Um, I think there's some, there's some truth to that, especially contemporary Drake who does really jump around in terms of following waves and, and just trying stuff out. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, they're at least closer than any other quote rock band. Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is their more life. I don't know. Uh, interesting. <laughs> Anyways, why don't, we, why don't we move on to some TV here real quick? Because a show that we talked about earlier when it, when it first dropped, Run, finished up their seven-episode season last night. Um, you know, it's it's labeled as a miniseries on HBO Go. I'm not sure if this is going to be a miniseries. Maybe we can save that discussion for the end. What do you think? Uh, I So I've watched a Reddit interview on Deadline. Vicky Jones has plans thoughts on a season two it's not officially announced but it sounds like she's very open to continuing the show i had gone in assuming it was a cut and dry miniseries but i guess that's not the won't be the case assuming the creator gets her way but hbo hasn't announced a season two yet executive produced by phoebe uh, waller bridge um starring uh merritt weaver damal gleason um and basically the premise is that they are these old lovebirds from back in college whose lives went in different directions, but they had a pact that if either of them texted run and the other person texted run back, they'd hop on a train and head out to the West coast of America. And that's what happens. It's how the show starts out. Um, we covered episode one, which I think we both really liked. We felt like there's some elements of comedy mixed with mystery uh, we were, I think, excited to see how these characters' backgrounds kind of played into their decision to do something like this um, and and see where it took them. And I, I actually thought the first, like, three to four episodes are pretty good. Some parts a little bit slow. And I, I think the, the will they, won't they of, like, hooking up was a, a bit frustrating for me only because it seemed like you made this huge choice to just leave your lives behind and now like this part is hanging you up um felt just like a bit curious but then 
the show really takes a turn in the second in right in the middle of the season. Um, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched, I'd say go watch and come back to this when Damal Gleason's uh, partner, uh, you know, work partner assistant dies. And uh, it's kind of not known if Gleason pushed her, she fell um, and what they're going to do with that. And then it kind of becomes about like, uh, will they, won't they turn themselves in? Like, uh, and then there's cops involved. Phoebe Waller-Bridge shows up and is hilarious, but also just like, I wanted just to watch her more, you know, it, the, the show just felt like it, it never really figured out what it was going to be. And then ended on a very soft note last night, I felt like. So I was left a little bit disappointed. Dave, were you feeling the same way after run season one? Uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, going in after episode one, we talked about it. I wasn't really sure what the show was going for. There's elements of a love story, romanticism. There's thriller elements. There's a lot of different things. And I wasn't really sure what their angle was. And the show kind of just goes down the middle with it and then becomes a th- thriller at the end but it's kind of over something lame in terms of uh did he kill archie punjabi's character will he get away with it and it's like mm-hmm. i just think you know the show's good the show's strengths revolve around merritt weaver just bringing her really unique energy showcasing yeah, her talent as an actress a two-time emmy winner yet just the premise and where the script went, even in short 25 minute episodes, which is kind of strange. I was like, this isn't really that much of a thriller and they're really dragging out the, the romantic connection, but then they basically throw that all the way at the end, but they're kind of leaving it open for a season two. So I've, I'm just getting these vibes of shit getting walked back and the show potentially going off the rails, the train leaving the station. I don't know. So, yeah, and in the in the middle too, it, I I was kind of annoyed with some of the character decisions being a little illogical, and found uh, both of them to be unlikable at times as well. So, yeah, oh, yeah. it's uh, I never really knew what I was looking for, and I don't know if the show did a good job of telling me what I yeah. should have been looking for. So, yeah, I was a little underwhelmed. Yeah, I completely agree. I, you know, and it's it's interesting too. I know Phoebe Waller-Bridge is highly in demand, and I wonder how much she actually had input on this. Obviously, she was in the last three episodes. Um, because the writing on Fleabag was so tight and so well thought out that then to have this be kind of her next big project that we're seeing feels right. a bit confusing because, like you've, I think, really stated really really well the show never really even lets you know what you should expect or what or what you want out of these characters and i i found them both pretty detestable when you when you get down to the core of it i mean damal gleason is uh completely misogynistic it seems like um very shallow um doesn't really seem to care about <laughs> people at all using everybody in his life yeah and merritt weaver seems to be uh, a bit of a I don't want to say coward, but someone who just feels very much like their their life has just taken them for a ride instead of them taking control of their life. And this feels like her attempt to get that back, but doing it in like the complete wrong way and the stuff with her family just really leaves you like a bad taste in your mouth a lot of times. And you're kind of like, these two people really suck. <laughs> like, why yeah, would exactly. I, who am I rooting for here? Uh, I found myself rooting for Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character and Babe the Cop. I want to, I, I want to watch more of them. Show me their relationship. Babe seems like a terrible cop, but also like well-meaning. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character obviously has uh, some stuff going on maybe, but, but I think was very funny. Seeing her sing karaoke, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, I literally was like in tears laughing at. I thought that was hilarious. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that's probably not a good sign for your show when these two side characters end up being what I want to see more of. Um, but I digress. Anything that you think did work with run season one? I think all the performances are good. Uh, and the runtime worked to its pleasure, uh, to its benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the show was able to take little detours, like when they're in uh, Chicago and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that's really fun. But I think if you can, if the show hones in on what its goals are a little bit better than, these 
side detours and side characters like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and other people you add will land, I think, uh, better to, to better effect of the show and not be as distracting because they stand out as being highlights as was, you know. So, yeah. yeah uh, I, I'm not opposed to. I mean, I'll watch season two if they make it. Of course, I'm just curious to see what would happen and, and really if, if they do get to make that chance. And even if they don't, uh, I do appreciate the swing. You know, they definitely tried to do something a little different, and that's cool. Yeah. No, definitely. I think the structure was different. I, I think, like you said, the concept is uh, it sets you up to have these little side adventures that maybe they can take more advantage of in like a ten episode season. Um, I also really thought that there were like some really fun, silly moments between them, like whether it was the episode where Merritt Weaver, I think it was season episode two or three, where she really wanted to have sex with him, but Dom Hall Gleason was very noncommittal towards this, so she brings the guy back, and they end up just talking and kind of like working things out. I felt like that was like a really like human moment and kind of helped build that character out in a really nice way. And we, I felt like I really wanted more of that. Even when Merritt Weaver like makes a friend with, you know, uh, Archie's character, I forgot, I forgot what the character's name was. Um, and is kind of talking about her life and how she's running away with this guy, even though, you know, the, the assistant obviously knows the whole time that I thought that was very like humanizing. So just seeing more of that sort of stuff, I thought would be good. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's sad because I was actually I had really high hopes for this show. So I'm hoping that if season two does come around, they can write the ship. Another thing I was very excited for, uh, because it was on Netflix, I will say that. Not a, not a movie we might, we might have talked about if it was in theaters, but now that it was sent to Netflix after its March 14th debut at South by Southwest was pushback or you know canceled obviously and then it's uh release in theaters in april i think it was on the 24th was canceled because theaters are closed the lovebirds was bought by netflix and released this past weekend starring kumail nanjiani and Issa ray um you know kind of details it's a comedy detailing this or romantic comedy detailing this couple who is falling apart and then they're kind of pushed into this uh crime drama so to speak and they're they're trying to solve it um i think more interestingly it's the follow-up by michael showalter to the big sick uh oscar nominated movie mm-hmm. starring yep. kamel back in 2017 yeah i think um and that movie was so unique because it was this you know kind of framed as a romantic comedy but really this more like look at this person dealing with uh losing a relationship and how to be a partner while not being you know not being able to really be there and exploring what the situation meant for their life and kumail gave great performance in that uh lovebirds i think really fell short for me in terms of expectations you have these two actors i really like in isa and kumail and i felt like just the the beats didn't really they weren't really there for me were you how did you feel about the lovebirds though were you on the same page yeah, so it's funny. <laughs> Big Sick, that's a movie nominated for its screenplay. Lovebirds, yeah. the biggest uh, fault is its weak screenplay. Just, just yeah. kind of poetic, I guess. Yeah, uh, Issa and Kamal, two actors I really like, they have great chemistry on this. They are funny people. They are proven talents at this point. And when the material is actually good in the script, they're really good because yeah. they're funny people and they, they have good chemistry they're playing off each other well but the movie's just kind of a hodgepodge just kind of jumping around doing all mm-hmm. these things nothing really surprises you a lot of formulaic beats and, and jokes. yeah and thus that kind of hampers the overall i think level of the jokes and even mm-hmm. the volume of the jokes so and it's kind of funny because it doesn't really commit to any of its genres too like they're together it's not really a romantic comedy. They're already together and they're, they say they break up and then they, you know, you know what happens still, but like they, they stay together. It, it's, it's, it's a little different than that. So there's not a whole lot of romance and the, the whole like crime caper part to it. Uh, I was just kind of weak, you know, Paul Sparks. Haven't seen him in a little bit, but he mustache. was, yeah, mustache. He was, uh, just kind of a thin, thin villain you know and <laughs> the movie is just like i feel like if this script was redone 
there's got to be a really impressive supporting character that comes in for 10 minutes and like almost steals the scene. You know, I'm thinking of stuff like super bad or something, you know, like when Joel Chogreville shows up or something like that, you know, (laughs) it's like, we're we're just kind of missing elements to make this movie a lot more funnier and a lot have better rhythm to it. And it doesn't really have that. It's still kind of fun, easy to watch, whatever. Um, I feel like this was a smart sell on Paramount's uh, part because if this had come out in April as planned, it gets mediocre to bad reviews. And because it's rom-com and Jace, uh, nobody goes to pay for it. And that's hear the end of it. That's it, right? But now Netflix has it. I mean, when I watched it, it was on their top 10, you know, I really yeah. trust that or not. And now it gets lumped in with the, you know, the set it ups and your to all the boys and your uh the half of it from this year you know there's a a different expectation put on a netflix comedy or rom-com so uh, i think it kind of recalibrates what people wanted from it and you know i haven't really checked in on the overall uh buzz about it really from, from normal people but um it got more it definitely got in front of more people as a result and i guess that's that's what you hope for when you make a movie but yeah, it's uh, it just didn't quite uh come together, but you know we like those actors. Yeah, just uh, looking here on Letterbox, which I know is not necessarily a great gauge of where people are at with it. It has a two point nine average score, um, so that means it's right in the middle, and I think that that's about right. You know, I, I agree. I think the writing on this it's very sloppy, and a lot of it just is like doesn't make sense and. You know, there's a a piece of this where you need to accept uh, lack of logic in some of these situations, and you can kind of explain away as they're in a stressful situation, they're scared. Um, But these are two characters that are just constantly making decisions that don't really make sense for who they are or who they're set up to be. Um, And sure, for a comedy that might make sense, but when it happens as frequently and to the extent as it did in this, I I was really just getting very frustrated a lot of the time. and it, like you said, it was very predictable. It really wasn't anything that surprised you. The most surprising part to me was after they see Mustache run the guy over, they go to a diner or a restaurant in New Orleans that doesn't sell, serve alcohol, which I was like, I literally had to like stop the movie. I was like, is this really taking place in New Orleans? I had to go look it up because uh, that's a shocking turn. Um, I did think they showed some really cool parts in new Orleans, like a couple of, of places that they went in terms of like bars um, or where they were like running around the streets really did feel like they were in NOLA. So that was, I thought pretty cool and an interesting setting for a movie like this. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't really have much else good to say about it. I think uh, it, it stinks because Issa and Kumail are two stars that, have really taken off in the last couple of years. And I feel like they haven't really had that um, big screen success other than the big sick for Kumail. You know, Issa, I don't think has had that, that movie that's really clicked yet. I'm, I'm sure she will. She's such a talent as we've talked about. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking of the photograph that came out earlier this year, Issa and uh, Latina yeah. Stanfield. And another thing where people, from what I didn't see the movie, but from what I gathered, everyone really liked two talented actors, so they had good chemistry, and the movie was fine. But because that now it's a kind of a pure romance love story movie that uh didn't really make a lot of money and kind of came and went for Issa and Kamal. It's Stuber come out last July, which again I, heard, I thought people said was just fine, but yeah, kind of they're both kind of picking their spots, so I'm not worried about that. Um, and Kamal's going to be in Eternals coming out now next uh, February. So he got swole for that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> swole uh, Kumail in all his glory. But yeah, I mean, you know, mo- the mo- vast majority of people will treat this as a Netflix release and not be too uh, disappointed at the end of the day because that's how we are conditioned to treat Netflix comedies, to not have high expectations and be pleasantly surprised when those are exceeded. And most Netflix things honestly i mean like actually thinking about that what are like the the netflix releases you're usually excited for like unless it's something that's really pumped out as like having oscar buzz i can't think of like another movie that i was like wow i can't wait for this thing to come out right yeah yeah i mean that's that's right i mean they they they, they pay 
they get the big talent, right? You get your, your Romas, your Irishmans, your marriage stories. That's kind of obvious, right? Those movies would have been great no matter who put them out. But other movies, yeah. I mean, I think my favorite original Netflix movie that wasn't an Oscar contender is probably Set It Up. I think Set It Up's amazing, but still got to watch that. And Extraction has really good uh, action scenes, at least. Yeah, it's shot really well. Yeah. But uh, I, I I prefer Netflix for the TV obviously yeah i mean they for for years now they're behind each just behind hbo in terms of overall emmy noms like the they make a lot of bad shows because they kind of make shows for everyone but they also make a lot of great shows at this point so i think netflix is still a tv destination for people yeah no i totally agree when i when i think about netflix i think about like roma irishman and mindhunter those are like the three things that really come to mind for me obviously they have some tv shows i don't like tune into like grace and frankie um dead to which, me yeah, dead to me, which uh, get a lot of buzz and a lot of love. But um, oh, and also obviously um, the, the the Natasha Leone um, Russian doll, Rus- Russian doll, mm-hmm. which yeah, has a lot. Thing. So yeah, they they pumping out the content. So speaking of content, Dave, what should our our content consumers be consuming for next week? So there's a lot of there's actually a lot of stuff going on. So on the movie front, there actually is another movie coming out on Friday on VOD. That's uh. The high note, that's that Tracy Ellis Ross, Dakota Johnson music movie. I had seen the trailer mm. a few months ago. That isn't going to be on VOD, what would have been a theater movie. So we'll see how that goes. I think the reviews are just coming out for that. And then we have the end of Miss America, Killing Eve. We'll talk about Homecoming Season 2, which is out now on Amazon. And two big albums from The Killers and Lady Gaga. So a lot of good stuff going on. Jeez, a lot of stuff going on. Homecoming with that Janelle Monet. That's right. Replacing Julia Roberts this season. So a lot to talk about. So stay tuned. Hit that subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to find the pod anywhere you want to at nostalgia on Twitter. And also give us that five-star rating review on iTunes. Stay safe. See you next week. Yeah.